The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know. And life is worth the living just because He lives. God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. I went to seminary 
1968. At that time in the church, there was a great upheaval. It was across the whole Christian community. That upheaval was a throwing out of the old Orthodox views, and it was bringing in what we called relational theology. Relational theology was primarily focused on what we felt. It was not focused on obedience. I grew up in a home, a very conservative Christian home, where the entire focus was on obedience, doing the will of God. Now, can you imagine, I lived on a on a small farm. We had a large garden. If my father had said to me as a boy, Raymond, I want you to go out and finish hoeing out the tomatoes. We started this morning, but we didn't finish. So before you go swimming... Go hoe out the rest of those tomato plants. What if I had said to my dad, Dad, I just don't feel like doing that. How would he have responded? I can tell you. He would have said, Well, maybe I don't feel like giving you dinner tonight. Maybe I don't feel like letting you go swimming this afternoon. In fact, maybe I feel like just sending you to your bedroom and you have some significant time out. No, my dad would not have tolerated me saying, I don't feel like it, Daddy. Can we talk about my feelings? No. On the farm, Dad would speak, and he expected obedience. And if obedience was not forthcoming, there would be rapid punishment to say, next time, quickly obey my word. Well, in the modern church, which really began in the 60s, there was a transition. That transition was no longer to talk about obedience or righteousness, to no longer talk about sin, to no longer talk about the atoning sacrifice of Christ or the blood, Instead, everything was directly fashioned around, tell us how you feel. So I immediately began in seminary to be trained in small group process. I began reading books on relational theology. And in the small group process, Frankly, it was mostly a, a gathering of stupid. And most small groups continue today in the church to be gathering together stupid. What do I mean? Well, we have opinions and we have feelings. So let's deal with our opinions. Let's talk about our feelings. Well, I grant that that feelings are very important. But it's, as I've said to you on a number of occasions, it's like 
the train is pulling out of the station. The caboose, which is the comfort center of a train in the olden days, that's where the potbelly stove would be to keep it warm. That's where you would have food, and that's where you would have a bunk where someone who was going off shift could lay down and sleep. It was the comfort station. But not once as a boy did I ever see a caboose pulling a train. It doesn't work that way. You've got to have the old steam engine puffing and huffing, or you've got to have that new diesel pulling that huge string of freight cars. It's not our feelings that direct our path. It's our convictions regarding what is right and what is wrong. The feelings will come along. They always come along. But they're secondary to the decision about what am I going to do with my life. And so today, many sermons are focused around how do you feel? What's your opinion? There is, shock, shock, there is absolute truth. There is truth found in Jesus Christ that is always right and always wrong. There are absolutes that we must adhere to. And it's not open for us to say, well, how do you feel about that? Well, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It only matters that you obey it, that you do what you're supposed to be doing. Try going to your job. And your boss asks you to do something, and you say, I don't feel like it. Let's talk about my feelings, sir. What's your boss going to say? I don't care about your feelings. We have to produce what is necessary so that we can pay your salary. So get busy and please accomplish the task I've assigned you. (laughs) Now you see what I'm talking about. And then with that whole emphasis on feeling, we began to interpret the scriptures from the perspective of put yourself in the scriptures and tell me how you feel about this situation. Well, it really doesn't matter how I feel about it. The facts are the facts. We have the liberty today to be focused in feelings, but that will soon be past. When you have enough money and you have enough food and you have the new car and you have the nice house and you have the clothes, all of your basics are covered, then you have an opportunity to begin to focus on, okay, what are my feelings about all this? Well, I feel sad. I'm happy. I'm angry. I'm complaining. This isn't fair. This isn't just. You have all the room in the world to talk about your opinions because you have your bases covered. But I tell you what, if you're starving to death and you have to decide about going out and getting that farm produce or you have to talk about going out and finding that food, Nobody's going to suggest, let's sit down together and talk about how we feel about all of this. 
Now, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. You're starving to death. You're going to go get the food. In other words, what happened in the 60s was that the whole church was turned upside down. And we turned more and more toward the seeker-sensitive church. We began to say, go out and pull all the people Survey all the people in your neighborhood and and ask them what kind of church they'd be comfortable in, how they feel about the offering, how they feel about the cross. How do you feel about pews that don't have cushions on them? How do you feel about these programs? How do you feel about find the need and fill it? Find the itch and scratch it. And churches did that, and whole churches were founded based on these principles of church growth because there was no need for righteousness because we had everything. And so churches were turned into entertainment centers. Mega churches learned very quickly that they could become a mega church by bringing in the right speakers and by bringing in the right music, and some small churches tried to do this and ended up deeply in debt. And pastors lost their jobs over such foolishness. But other church pastors were more clever. They were better at guerrilla marketing. And so the churches of America took on the form of businesses. Church pastors became coaches and CEOs, chief executive officers, spinning out strategies for success, bodies, bucks, and bricks. That's what it was all about. And today it is still all about that. Bodies, bucks, and bricks. But for Jesus, it was just about bodies. It had nothing to do with money, and it had nothing to do with bricks. It was about saving the lost. And then whatever was required in order to save the lost, we were to do it. I know congregations who have not saved one soul in the last five or ten years. Oh, there's been lots of church transfers from other places because they advertised they had the friendliest church in town or they had the best children's programs in town or they offered the best music and worship experience, quote, unquote, had nothing to do with worship. It only had to do with bringing in the hip hop and the other kinds of music and putting some Christian words to it and some sentimentalism to it. And off to the races they went as they saw the people crowding into their beautiful, beautiful sanctuaries. It didn't save souls, and it hasn't saved the church. It has utterly corrupted the church. And the world now laughs at the church in America because they recognize it's just big business. So we come to this story again today of of Gideon. And I want you to notice that as we look at this story, it's not talking about how Gideon felt. Gideon knows that he is being called by God 
to deliver Israel. That's an action. He knows that this delivery of Israel may very well cost him his life. He's commanded to build a proper altar. That is always the first step toward a great outreach for the Lord God of heaven, not a survey of the unsaved, not a careful program of guerrilla marketing, not bringing in the top name brands that are currently hot in the church business method. The first step is to build a proper kind of altar and to lay all you have on that altar. That's what Gideon did. He he brought in his dad's best bull, seven years old, fully mature, worth a lot of money. And he offered that bull on a proper altar where all could see it. And everyone expected him to be executed by the community people because they were desperately eager to protect their religious rituals and their practices. The same is true today. I don't have a lot of pastors calling me and saying, Pastor Ray, would you come preach to my congregation? Are you kidding me? I haven't had one pastor ask me to come preach to their congregation. Why? Because they don't want their congregation to hear this kind of message because people might get up and walk out and they'd walk out with their purses and the money would be hurt. Never mind that if the congregation ever got a hold of the vision of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and living a righteous and holy life solely given over to Jesus, there might be revival in their church. Never mind that. They're protecting their finances and their reputation. You know, what would happen if a pastor invited me into his church and I I said publicly, you need to turn your televisions off and you need to stop watching the the football games and the baseball games and the professional sports. You need to spend time with Jesus and you need to repent of your sins. Oh no, that would stir up the feelings and they would want to run me out of town on a rail. I understand that. I'm not naive. I've been preaching for over 50 years. I know what the game is and I won't play it. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is righteousness and there is wickedness. And the modern church is extremely corrupt and wicked. Now, when we look at this story, Gideon, the word is going out among the Midianites that there may be a judge being raised up and they better go take care of this judge before he becomes popular and begins to raise up an army. Verse 34, this is chapter 6, verse 34 of Judges. There's a very interesting statement now. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Well, literally in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. In the Hebrew, it says, then the spirit of the Lord came and wrapped Gideon, put a robe around him, 
the Holy Spirit came and surrounded him and gave him great courage and great confidence. But there was still a little confidence lacking. So Gideon now, in humble supplication, Okay, God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Now, this is something that troubles me about Gideon. I love the story of Gideon. But there are seeds of deception in Gideon's heart that will later result in Israel once more turning against the living God. These seeds are seeds of self. He says, I will know that you will save Israel by my hand. No. God is not going to save Israel by the hand of Gideon. He's going to save it by his own mighty arm. And we've got to understand this in the modern church. It's not some hotshot preacher you need that has a great reputation. It's the mighty God of heaven coming down. It's the Lord himself coming and wrapping us in the Holy Spirit. That's what brings revival. Not a smooth-tongued preacher that has a great reputation. Well, Gideon, it happened just as Gideon had asked. He squeezed the fleece the next morning, and he wrung out the dew, and there was a bowl full of water as a result, but there was no water on the ground. Well, Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me. You know, we've got to become that bold with God. We've got to recognize that this is all about the Lord. It's not about us. And there may be times when we have to say, Lord, Lord, please, are you, don't be angry with me. This morning, as my wife and I shared in our time of worship, the question we were really faced with, is the Lord pleased with us? And that song, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. There needs to be a great humility in our hearts. There needs to be a a crying out, don't be angry with me, God. I pray that you're pleased with me. But let me ask one more thing. Could I, Lord? One more test. I don't like testing God. I recognize that God is the one who tests me. I'm not testing God. He's testing me. This time, oh God, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night God did so. The fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. So early the next morning, 
Gideon and all of the men who were camped at the spring of Herod, the camp of Midian. It was huge. At least a hundred and forty or a hundred and fifty thousand men armed with the armaments of war, the sword, the spear, the shields, the bows, a mighty army. And now we have the Lord saying to Gideon, this is chapter 7, verse 2, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that with her own strength she has saved herself, announcing now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. The Lord says, look, You're too big. If you win this war, you will say it was, it was you and God who won the war and you're not, you're not in this. I'm in it. Oh, if we could just learn that lesson in the modern church, that we're not the ones that have to go out and in our flesh dig people out advertise and and do a song and dance like one popular church here in the D.C. area. One Sunday morning, the director of music came out in a skin-tight blue suit, a man with a cane, tap dancing in his blue uh, sequined suit like some kind of Broadway star. Utter utterly repulsive before God. All the drums, all the the hoopla we used to call it. An hour of preamble patting each other on the back, going through our rituals, and then maybe 15-minute, and if you're lucky, a 20-minute message from the scriptures, but more likely a 20-minute message from some video or some magazine, not from the Bible. I know pastors who will preach a whole sermon and not use one scripture. It's all humanism. It's human empowerment. It's being all you can be, as Robert Schuller would say. It's interesting to me today, if some of you even know about the Crystal Cathedral. I've sat in that beautiful edifice. It is truly stunning. But it's no longer a church. It now belongs to the Catholic Church. They bought it. That beautiful campus no longer belongs to the Dutch Reformed Church. They had a huge family fight, and it all blew out. It went bankrupt. They had to sell. Oh, my brother, my sister. 
You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You have to face the war and then recognize that you can't save yourself. The victory is ours in Jesus Christ. In time and space and history, it's not about what you feel. Nobody in this whole story ever says to Gideon, Gideon, please come sit down with me. Tell me how you feel about what God is saying to you. No, it doesn't matter what Gideon feels about what God is saying. It's do what God has said you're to do, and he will equip you to accomplish what he's told you to do. So 22,000 men leave, and they now have an army of of 10,000 men against an army of almost 150,000 men. Wouldn't you say that that was a pretty impossible fight? Can you blame people for saying, I'm scared to death of this. We're going to die. I'm out of here. So the Lord says to Gideon, How do you feel now, Gideon? No. No, instead God says, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll sift them there for you. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. I'm going to... I'm going to run this battle. If only in the church today we could begin to understand that God has to run the battle. Not the pastor, not the vestry, not the bishop, not the board. God has to run the battle. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And the Lord said, separate those who lap the water with their tongues. That is, scoop up water in their hands and bring it to their mouth and drink out of their hands. Separate those men from the ones who get down on their knees and put their face in the water and suck the water up. In other words, God is separating these 10,000 men out. He wants the men who are going to pay attention, who are going to have their eyes forward, who are moving, who will obey his commands. Not the not the complainers, not the people who are going to say, oh, it costs too much. Oh, I can't stand it. Oh, oh, oh. No. He's going to separate those people out. He's going to separate out the people who are primarily concerned about what they think and what they feel from the men who will obey the word of the Lord. Oh, for an army of men and women whose only heart is to follow Jesus, who have been transformed in the in the Greek, in that Romans 12 passage, it's literally metamorphosed, like a worm going into a cocoon, and they're being changed into something beautiful, a butterfly. 
Now, a worm could complain all day long. Look, come on, I'm just a worm. I have feelings about this. No. No. Climb up on that tree and become something beautiful for God. So the Lord said to Gideon, verse 7, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. God does not say, with 300 men that lapped, you and I, Gideon, will will save the children of Israel from the Midianites. No, God doesn't say that. God will not share his glory with man. I have been sickened to the point of wanting to vomit listening to introductions of famous speakers at a church service or meeting where the intro goes on and on about this wonderful man who has accomplished all of these things. Shut up and sit down. It's God who's in charge. This is God's church. This is God's work. He's the one who will save us from the hand of the enemy. He's the one who will put the devil to rout and cast him out into darkness. Not you and not me. We're nobody. So don't sit around nursing how you feel. Oh, I feel like our pastor's just not getting the job done. Really? Our feelings really don't matter in this. It's whether you strap on your sword and whether you're willing to obey the word of the Lord even when it looks like it's utter stupidity. I'm facing that today. I know that God has called me to proclaim a message of holiness and righteousness. A message of obedience to the commands of Jesus to America and to confront America with its sin. I can't do that. I don't have what I need to do that. And even if I had and could, I couldn't. It's God who has to pour a message out of a man or woman's mouth that will convict and change and turn a man from his own wicked feelings and his own sentimentality into a warrior for God who will have his eyes lifted up and his sword in his hand and go at the command of God and do exactly what he's told. Gideon says, let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 and took over their provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now we have an impossible battle that has shaped. And today we have an impossible battle against a few godly men and women who still adhere to the voice of our God against the new world order, against the beast power that is rising visibly over America and over the Western world, over all of the world. It's obvious that China and Russia are cooperating with the world leaders and that President Biden is playing his part 
the leaders of Europe are playing their part. There's an agenda to depopulate the earth. It's all in process. They want to bring starvation to America and to Europe and other parts of the world. They want absolute total control. And the scriptures tell us that for three and a half years, they will accomplish that absolute total control, except for those who are hidden away. Now, as we face that incredible new age, occultic world government that is utterly wicked and utterly of the devil that wants to steal freedom of speech and freedom of movement and freedom of commerce, wants to steal all of that from America and anywhere else where those desperate seeds of democracy have been planted. They want to rip them out and destroy nationalism. And the one world government is rising. And there are a few godly men and women who will stand against it, but they will not be able to win. The Antichrist will have power over the holy ones for three and a half years. That's what Revelation tells us. Now, I'm not going to get into the argument of who's taken and who's left behind. It's not worth arguing about. What's more, much, much more important is, do you see the battle shaping? You're still here, so obviously you haven't been taken. Will you obey the word of the Lord, and will you leave your sin I was asked very interesting questions last night by a young man about the age of the earth and the dinosaurs, and was it an apple that Eve ate? I gave him the best answers I could from Scripture and then said, but the real issue is, are you living a godly moral life? Are you walking in obedience to the commands of Jesus? Or do you feel... This is all foolishness. I don't need to do this. I'm my own man. I'm God. I can handle whatever comes. I've done it so far. I've done lots of funerals for people like that as they whimper in the last days of their life. Now the camp of Midian is just in front of them. It's nighttime, and the Lord says to Gideon, get up and go down against that camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. Now, if you're afraid to attack, this is the only indicator that there's any feeling involved in this. If your fear is so high that you're afraid to obey, go on down to the camp And what you're going to hear and see will encourage your heart, and then you'll obey me. So he and his servant went down to one of the outposts of the camp. 
It says there, their camels could not be counted. They were as the sand of the seashore. There were probably 150,000 men. Gideon comes down very quietly, secretly, avoiding the night outpost. And he's crouched down outside of a tent, and he's listening as he hears one of the, one of the men say, I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread. Notice it wasn't a round loaf of, of wheat bread. Wheat is much more valuable than barley. I want you to catch that. This is not about Gideon. This is about God. Gideon is just barley. He's not the finest wheat. That's God. He says, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend responds, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. The Midianite is confessing that the God of heaven is almighty and all-powerful. I want you to make that same confession. I want you to understand God is almighty. doesn't matter what you feel. It matters whether you believe God is almighty and whether you will obey him and walk in holiness before him or whether you will make excuses for yourself and your wickedness. So Gideon hears the dream and the interpretation, and he he bows right there, and he begins to worship God. He returns to the camp of the 300 men, and he gives orders, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. You notice here he's humble. Gideon is mixed in this. He knows he has no chance of taking 150,000 men with 300. He's not stupid. He knows he can't do it. Until we know we can't do it, God will not move. But once we know we can't do it, and we wait on God, and we proclaim by faith, this is the will of God, and he will do it. Oh, watch out. God's going to clear the floor. It's going to wipe out the battlefield. He he tells his men, watch me. Follow my lead. Do what I do. When I get to the edge of the camp, I want you to do exactly what I'm going to do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, from then all around the camp, blow your trumpets and shout for the Lord. And for Gideon, again, Gideon shows that spark of pride that will later get him and Israel into such trouble and wickedness. My greatest fear is that somehow in the battle in which I'm engaged on this broadcast and at the National Prayer Chapel and the revival that God is going to bring, that there be any spark in my own heart that this is about me. Pride will destroy us and God's people. 
There is no room for pride in the ministry. There is no room for pride in the witness of God's people. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That is, probably just after they've all settled down in our sleep. And just after they changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. Can you imagine the sound? The trumpets are a a war signal to tell the troops to move out. With all of these trumpets, there must, in their minds, be a huge army attacking them. And then they, they break the jars, makes a crashing sound, and then they see the the lights lighting up the horizons as the army now is charging down on them in their minds. Grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets, they blow the trumpets and they shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp. They didn't go into the camp. They stayed on the outside. Remind you of another story? The children of Israel marching around Jericho and then giving that mighty shout and blowing the trumpets and the walls fall down? Well, all the Midianites are terrified. They're caught in the middle of the darkness. They're crying out as they flee, and they see each other as enemies. God totally confuses them. Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. 120,000 men will soon be dead among the Midianites. God utterly destroys them. Now, the army flees, and Gideon and his band send messages recalling all the troops and many more, and they come and chase the Midianites, killing them as they can. He orders Ephraim come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them. So as the Midianites in their terror begin running across, charging across, wading across the Jordan River, they're to be on the other side ready to kill them. Utter confusion in the night hour. They capture two of the Midianite leaders, Orb and Zeb, and they kill them. And they pursue the Midianites. And there is a great victory. It does not tell us that any of the children of Israel died in that battle. God gave them a total victory. Gideon and his men did not die. They were delivered. 
Now, I want this story to stir your heart, to say, what is it that you face that's utterly impossible? For some of you, it will be sickness. For some of you, it will be finances. For some of you, it will be the loss of a job. For some of you, it will honestly be the recognition that you have not won anyone to the gospel of Jesus and you are bereft of fruit in your life. And you've been praying for conviction and you've been praying for instruction. And now as the Lord begins to tell you what to do, you need to obey him and do exactly what he's told you to do. And know that if you will establish first a proper altar where you lay your life on that altar, according to Romans, the 12th chapter, you will be able to test and approve, it says, what God's will is. When people come to me and they say, I don't know what God's will is, Pastor. I know they're telling me I have not laid my life on that altar and I have not been willing to stop paying attention to my feelings and begin to simply obey the word of God to my heart and to my life, regardless of what the cost is. I pray today you will build a proper altar and get skin in the game. I can tell you that victory is ours in the hand of Jesus. Victory is ours in the hand of Jesus against the new world order. Yes, for a time, we will have no victory against it. But in the end, the Antichrist and the beast power and the image to the beast, they're going to all be thrown into the fiery lake. And then finally, after the thousand years of the millennium, Satan himself will be cast, bound by one angel. He will be cast into the fiery pit. And the victory is ours. Now I need to speak briefly with you about where we're at with National Prayer Chapel with Pilgrim's Progress. I'm standing by faith for the victory in the finances for National Prayer Chapel over this absolute mountain that's in front of us. We're still a thousand dollars short. If you'd like to help cover the cost of this radio because you believe this message is important to continue going out, then I ask you please to respond. Tomorrow should be a day of prayer. But if the response is not adequate today and at the post office when I go today, Tomorrow will have to be a day for an offertory, which I have not had to do for many months. But I'm not going to be able to teach or preach until we have this $1,000 covered. Now, some of you could give that 1000 Some of you could give $10 or $5. It doesn't matter. God always adds together everything that's given, and it's always just enough to cover the cost of the radio broadcast. I'm standing by faith. 
I know it's not by my hand. It's not by my power. It's by the hand of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. You can write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You're also welcome to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. I'm going to look forward to hearing from you. You can give online at nationalprayerchapel.com, or you can write, I trust Jesus to cover the cost of this broadcast. I do not have the ability to do so, but I know Jesus does. The battle belongs to the Lord, not to me. So I stand by faith. I'm not discouraged. I'm not unhappy. I am full of confidence that Jesus is going to provide as he has for many months, many years. So we're out of time, but let me quickly pray. Lord, I know the battle belongs to you, and I know that this message of righteousness and holiness needs to go out over America and confront and lift up a standard by your precious blood, a standard of holiness and righteousness. Lord, please come. I put my trust in you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, God bless you, my brother, my sister. Thank you for joining us today. Please, if you have not yet signed up, enrolled for this broadcast on YouTube, subscribed, please do so. We go, we spread further when you subscribe. The more people, the further we go.